Are we gonna do what they say can be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm East Bound, just like no bandit run. Keep your foot hard on the pedal. Welcome to Highway Freaks, real truckers, real life. We are at visit number 26. I'm Bright Guy, the Road Dogs, your host, and standing by, my cellmate, J-Talk, and of course, Wild Man Will, along with Canadian Lady Trucker Janet. And tonight, well, we've got a lot of topics in mind, and we will start with yours truly, who has the life and times of Andre the Giant. I'm sure that's something you guys will want to hear. We also have the top 26 cartoon dogs of Hollywood. Might even include Jay's dog. You never know. Uh, of course, we also have, well, you always tell me, you know, that Zephyr's always animated. So there you go. Okay. Yeah. So, there you go. Okay. Jay Talk has the dark side of Detroit and the life of Robert Blake. From Beretta, Will's topics are how to keep your Facebook account safe, Russian hackers, and the Amazon doorbell ring hack. Today we have Canadian lady, lady trucker Janet talking about legislation targeting chameleon carriers and truck parking. And I know we're all going to get in on, on that one. I also have my worst week in truck driving. I'm going to be telling you about that, and I defy anybody to top it. And then we have Jasper Stevenson, the guy that uh, I met, and we'll be talking about his uh, continuing book that I wrote for him called Possessed Love. That's another one of the chapters. Also, not to be without, this, a new song. It's called One of Us, Joan Osborne Remake. And I'm telling you, when you hear the lead singer, Ron Chenny, put his spin on this, you will be kind of in awe, actually. So, I'm in Fergus Falls, Minnesota tonight, and, well, gee, where are you? I am in Calgary. Again? You seem to uh, like this place. Well, not bad. How's it going? I've been in worse places. It's actually really nice today. Well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I mean, it's excellent. Still got to wear a jacket, but uh, no, it was actually quite nice. And then, of course, we have the family of Will Gibbs and, of course, Janet, Lady Trucker. Um, they're uh, mom and son team uh, in the same house together. What are you guys uh, doing here for the last week? How's your week? We've been doing palliative care to our dog. At least, right. I have heard about uh, the dog Faith. Do you want to tell our highway freaks a little bit about it? Um, sure. Yeah, she was just a couple of weeks ago. She uh, suddenly got really, really cold. I thought, you know, she had gotten into something. Um, she was like that for about three days, and then she was she finally ate. She was good again. So come last Friday, um, about noon, like in the morning, she was fine. She was bouncing around, doing great, and then by about noon, she started going downhill, and it was reminiscent of the previous incident, except that she actually, she wasn't able to breathe, she was ice cold from head to toe, and we rushed her in to our vet, who took one look at her, did a quick assessment, 
and I have to say thank you to Ramsey Animal Hospital um, for that quick assessment. They didn't charge us, but he said right away, take her up to emergency. Um, they drained some blood off of her lung, or sorry, off of her heart and her stomach as well, and diagnosed with hemangiosarcoma. Yeah, don't even get me started on 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 how I feel about that 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 veterinary yeah. whatever the whatever you uh, want the to call emergency it. yeah the emergency clinic it was um, we decided at the vet um, that we were going to bring her home because she doesn't do well under stress to begin with so um, we insisted that they stabilize her and we would take her home and it was against their their what they suggested right well so, yeah because you know. But, the next day, if we would have left her in, uh, I mean, we managed to get a, a, out of there just shy of $900. And if we would have kept her in overnight, um, the bill would have been over 4000 Jeez. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they they kept trying to insist that we keep her there. Like, no, we can take her home. We'd rather her die at home, not in here. And there's a better chance of her living if she, uh, for a couple uh, a couple more weeks, possibly, if we bring her home, you know? You know, even a month or so. And, I mean, she's doing quite well today. She was really energetic and, you know, doing her, her kisses and wagging the tail. That dog always wags her tail. It never stops. <laughs> so, Just imagine that, though. For an extra, what, what, what would it be, like nine, ten hours? It's literally going to go from $800 bill, eight $900 bill, to a four over $4,000 bill. They kept insisting we want to do these tests and that test and this test. Yeah. They were talking specialists, and I went, the problem I have with this is it is terminal. I already know that. She, the thing that solidified my decision to go to the vet with her was um, she was vomiting, and then she ended up having a seizure, and she couldn't get up on her own for over five minutes after the seizure. So that was what made that decision for me at that point. Yeah, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe we can get her through whatever she's going through. But with the tumor being on her heart, um, they said it's only a matter of time before the the, the sac wall fills up again with uh, with fluid. Yeah. So what, what, what kind of basically happens is it fills up with fluid to a point where the lungs or and the heart can't expand to its full potential, uh, which leads to um, circulation uh, getting, you know, only to certain areas of the body and others getting cut off. And uh, we were told that um, the fluid that was inside now, now usually when people say fluid, they imagine like clear or cloudy or whatever. No, this wasn't any of that. This was straight blood. So um, we know that it's, um, it's it's just a matter of time now. Uh, after draining that fluid, though, I tell you, it was only about, I don't know, 24 to 36 hours before like um, she, she started showing signs of having life in her, right? There's only one thing I can give you guys for advice. So I've gone down this road with Oki, and Janet knows that. And the only thing I can say is once the quality of life suffers, then that's when you have to make that decision. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Too many, pe- too many people keep the dogs going, and it, 
what happens is it, it's actually for their own self-worth. It doesn't help yeah. the dog any. Exactly. And they think they're helping the dog. And, but I can see you've got a good grasp on it. You do have a GoFundMe if you want to let the freaks know where how to get go about uh, helping you out. You, you're more than welcome to. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's under Janet Smith, um, and it uh, the title on it is Please Help Faith. Uh, basically, I know I, I put on $5,000 on there, but there is no way that I'm even going to reach that need. Um, just because when she has her next episode, uh, we've both decided that it's time for her to go. So um, it's just a matter of <clears throat> time now before we have to put her down. Yeah. Uh, we, won't, we won't let her suffer through this. And... and it, sorry, it's, it, I, I'm just going to say that it, it's also ju- just a matter of getting enough money up to um, pay, pay for, you know, the um, cremation expenses and whatever. And then the GoFundMe will be deleted after uh, that goal is reached. Whether it, Yeah, it'll be shut down after that. Yeah. And I will, uh, I donated $50. So I challenge anybody that is downloading this podcast, any one of our freaks, to do the same. And, uh, you know, maybe that can uh, go a long ways in uh, making a little more comfort in your lives after, you know, faith is gone. So that's that's my only ask for my freaks out there. Uh, I know, Jay, you are thinking of uh, also uh, matching like $20 to $50 as well. Uh, yeah. Okay. There you go. So we'll roll, get the ball rolling that way. So let's get into the topics. Okay, I think I should do the first long-winded one first, because um, Andre the Giant is uh, quite the talk. Um, he uh, he did a lot more than what people thought. Uh, he was known as the eighth wonder of the world, and he was born as Andre Rene Lusimov on May the 19th, 1946, in Colomiers, France. Day-Day, as he was called, reportedly weighed in at 13 pounds at birth. And uh, he grew up in a small town of Moliane, 40 miles east of Paris, a village farming community. He had four siblings, two older and two younger sisters, uh, two brothers. Uh, the father was Boris and Marianne, Rusimov, and um, he actually dropped out of school when it was legal to drop out of school, um, which is kind of interesting because normally, like, you know, people drop out of school in high school. He dropped out of school in grade eight, and uh, he basically ended up working on the farm because he, uh, here's the funny part, he couldn't ride the school bus anymore because he was so big. Um, he uh, ended up getting a ride from Samuel Beckett, who is a, a very uh, noted author. Uh, he went on to win the 1969 Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, mostly they talked about cricket while they were driving in this convertible all the time from there on. Uh, but his, uh, Andre's father and mother had talked uh, Samuel Beckett into actually taking him to school from there on. And he uh, weighed 240 pounds by the time he was age 12. And he left school by the time he was age 14, the legal age to drop out at that time, like I was saying. Um, by the time he was 15, he had grown to six foot six. Imagine a 15-year-old at six foot six. 
huh? He could do the work of three farmhands in a normal eight-hour day due to his massive strength and stamina. So he was a tremendous asset on the farm. Plus, he saved his dad the amount of three weekly wages for farmhands. He also complete, uh, completed an apprenticeship in woodworking. He next worked in a factory that manufactured engines for hay bales. Okay. Um, one time, his brother had a flat tire on his Mini Cooper, but they had no jack. So they asked, Andre, as a joke, just looked up the back of the car. You're big enough. Well, that's what he did. Because of his freakish strength, they now realize that, holy jeez, this kid's pretty amazingly strong. By 16 to 17, he started to grow so fast. He was playing soccer, um, and he played for four years, uh, rugby for two seasons as well. He uh, did some real or Olympic-style wrestling, uh, and the way that he did that is uh, it was just basically a situation where uh, a wrestler uh, got injured and uh, he stepped in and um, started wrestling and he, he actually kind of thought well this is kind of interesting um, by the time he was 17 Andre was attracting the interest of a small wrestling promoter in Paris so one day this promoter just showed up at the Rusamoff farm he told Andre's parents he could make a better-than-average living as a professional wrestler. The wrestling promoter was Lord Alfred Hayes. They took him to Port of Versailles, outside of Paris, to train him into this craft. He was six foot ten and weighed about 280 pounds now. It was tough for him to train, as other wrestlers were afraid of his untrained strength. He now basically got up to seven feet tall, and he was 18 years old in the following month. He just kept growing. Um, wrestling was actually 90% performance and 10% competition. See, the promoters realized fans were bored with real or Olympic-style wrestling. Uh, pro wrestling offered the illusion of violence. On a trip back home in 1965, Andre received the draft notice to join uh, for the Francis uh, Peacetime Army. Now, Andre was deemed unfit for service because there was no shoes big enough no trenches deep enough, or no bunks long enough to accommodate him. Shortly thereafter, his luck changed when uh, he met a gentleman by the name of Edward Carpentier. He was a popular French-Canadian wrestler who agreed to train him. Carpentier uh, saw Andre's potential immediately and told him to get as much ring experience as possible. Now, one night in Paris, when he was working out in a gym, a wrestler got hurt and they asked Andre to take his place. At the time, he was around six foot nine or ten and weighed around three hundred nine pounds. The first name that he used in France was Jean Ferry. The name came from a folk hero from the Grand Farrier, which meant the Great Ferry, which he had sized to be very believable that he was a lumberjack. Andre had enormous mass, and his hands were so massive. So if you take two of your hands and you put them together, that was his size hand. Soon, the giant, giant Ferry became one of the most feared wrestlers. By the time he was 21, the poor farm boy was undefeated, taking out all wrestlers, including people from the audience that thought that they could beat him. For the next two years, he was living a good life, traveling through Europe and Africa, wrestling in arenas and all carnivals, making a bigger name for himself. His visits were basically a main event when he'd come home. They put a sign up stating the population was 25, but when he was home, the sign said he was 30, it was 30. He was known as the big one back home. He was down to earth. He often played cards with the village folk. 
who mostly knew him as a little kid. He bought supper and beer for anyone that was associated with him. By 1969, Edward Carpentier, his trainer, felt he was ready for North America. But Andre had signed a contract to wrestle in Japan under the name Monster Rusamov because actually the biggest thing that Japan had at that time was the, the, the idea of, you know, Godzilla. So in Japan, Andre was actually examined for the very first time by a prominent doctor, and he was diagnosed with acromegaly, a rare granular disorder that's called giantism, a condition that causes a constant secretion of growth hormone. Andre's body could not stop growing. He was told by age 40 he will die, but he refused to accept the diagnosis. Success at a price, and Andre was lonely, so he started to drink and went nightclubbing. Bitter irony was that at age 22, he had lived half his life. So when his Japan tour was complete, Andre uh, traveled to Montreal at age 24, and he immediately was a big hit with Canadian fans. But the novelty soon wore off when the promoters could not find an opponent that was worthy to wrestle him, and the gateway seats started to dwindle. So his uh, trainer, Edward Carpentier, knew of a very popular wrestling promoter named Vince McMahon, and his son was Vince McMahon Jr. The McMahons proposed a schedule where Andre would travel around the world, never wearing out his welcome in one arena. So, that's, you know, if it took a year, you know, to see Andre, the people would go out of their way to go see him, okay? And his name was then changed to Andre the Giant. And the McMahons called their promotion the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, the WWE. Um, Vince McMahon Jr. even had Andre step on a two-foot box to make him even more larger than like during TV interviews. Uh, they, have ways, they had ways to really get the people uh, saying, wow, this, this guy is so huge. And he became the WWF's number one export at that time, traveling all over the world. And uh, Andre had so much power that he could actually fire wrestlers, and he did. He... Uh, he had this group, they were called the Fabulous Freebirds, and uh, they were a tag team consisting at the time of Michael Hayes, Terry Gordy, and Buddy Roberts. And the Freebirds would get super drunk, and they'd arrive at shows late, and Andre was so incensed that he told them they were fired. And he said, well, you, you, guys, you can't fire us, big man. And he said, well, let me put it this way. If you come back, you're going to be dealing with me. Needless to say, they never showed up, so they actually fired themselves. From there on, Andre obtained the nickname The Boss Man behind the scenes of the WWF. So, um, when you actually sat down with Andre to eat a five-course meal, which would take longer than a half hours, you would be involved in what he would eat. 16 steaks, 12 lobsters, he drank a case of beer, 10 bottles of wine, and he finished it off with just another bottle of Jack Daniels. Okay? Um, Andre's drinking was the stuff of legend. Most of the stories in the time that he drank, over 100 beers in one setting, were absolutely true. And here's the funny part. He was rarely drunk due to his enormous size, so they actually had him as the designated driver. Isn't that crazy? Uh, Andre rarely worked out, but he honed his wrestling skills to such excellent precision, he rarely hurt any of his competitors. And when you look at his enormous size, uh, you would think that, that that would be a, a, a major issue. He did suffer such indignities, though. He um, could not fit into automobiles. He could not hold things like a knife and fork, like you and I take for granted, because uh, they, they, 
appeared like a toothpick to him. He struggled daily with discomfort, and uh, he'd have to use uh, bathrooms. Uh, he couldn't use a toilet. He had to use the bathtub to relieve himself. Um, he couldn't do things like going into a phone booth to make a phone call. He, his, his thumbs were so large, he couldn't even dial on a dial phone. So, but he was very popular. He was actually on the late-night talk shows at that time. He developed all kinds of girlfriends. Uh, in every town, women started flocking to him just because they wanted to sleep with a giant. Uh, Andre actually had an estranged daughter that he didn't talk of, but I'll talk, talk to both her and of, of, of shortly. Uh, he was on Johnny Carson. He was on Merv Griffin. Um, he actually played Sasquatch on The Six Million Dollar Man. If you ever saw that episode, you remember that one. He was on BJ and the Bear, and he his most... Well, his most proud moment was being on The Princess Bride as Fessick, the giant, which is a Rob Renner film in 1986. So uh, he had wrestled at that time in over 4,500 matches, and he never conceded to anyone, nobody whatsoever. So technically, he was undefeated. By the time he was 40, his condition worsened, and uh, he never showed it. Nobody ever knew that, that he was in so much pain. He broke his ankle getting out of bed one day, and by 1984, the disease had ignored, uh, that he ignored was getting the better of him, which aged him dramatically. His back, his knees were hurting, and he was in constant pain. During his time in England, Andre elected to have back surgery from his back pain. Now, the doctors had no idea as to the amount of uh, the, anesthesi uh, the anesthesiologist to give, what, to give him, to put him to sleep. And they acquainted this to the comparison of alcohol that he consumed. So they asked him, you know, before they, you know, he was here, he is lying on this oversized operating table saying, we don't know how much to give you. And he says, well, two liters of vodka usually gives me a buzz. So, and how do you sedate a man who was 500 pounds at that time? So, plus you have to facilitate the surgery, you have to have oversized operating tables, specialized tools, but the operation was turned to success, but still his back continued to hurt due to his enormous sprain. Now, by WrestleMania three, with Hulk Hogan being the WWF champ and very popular, um, Vince McMahon talked to Andre about passing the torch to Hulk Hogan. So it was agreed that he would actually lose to the Hulkster in front of 92,000 people at the Pontiac Superdome. And uh, he actually had Hulk Hogan body slam him and actually help in aiding Hogan to pick him up because at that time he was pushing the 500-pound mark. And for, I mean, Hogan was jacked. I mean, he, he was he was a very strong guy, but uh, he still had a lot of problems. And Hogan was had great reservations whether Andre was actually going to pass the torch to him. Maybe he decided he'd change his mind, but he never actually did. So he went on to fight the likes of the Ultimate Warrior, Jake the Snake Roberts, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, King Kong Bundy, and Macho Man Randy Savage. There was actually wrestlers, though, he did not like. He didn't like the Iron Sheik. He actually didn't like the Ultimate Warrior because the Warrior decided to close line him for real. And um, that only took a punch in the side of the Warrior's head and then he decided I'd better back off on the, you know, close lining. Um, so shortly after that, Andre purchased a large cattle ranch at age 41. The ranch was in Ellerbe, North Carolina. It was custom-made home for the big man. He had a custom-made recliner, shower, barbecue, etc. 
but his condition had actually taken over him, so he spent most of his time on crutches by that time. Just after New Year's of 1993, Andre returned to Molien, France, for his father's funeral. And for days after the funeral, he played cards with the village folk. He returned to a hotel room at nights in Paris. And on the night of January 27, 1993, Andre went to sleep, and he never woke up. Chauffeur found him dead, and his death was attributed to congestive heart failure from a buildup of fluid in the body. Uh, Andre Rusimov at that time weighed 530 pounds. He was age 46 when he died, and he had wrestled over 5,000 matches to date. As Andre requested to Frenchie, his caretaker of his ranch, that his body be flown back to uh, uh, back to the ranch in Ellerby, North Carolina, and he wanted his body to be cremated over the whole ranch. There was over 200 of his closest friends at the funeral, including Hulk Hogan, uh, Macho Man, and whatnot. And um, what Frenchie did is he got on his horse, and what he did is he uh, spread the ashes all over the farm. And Andre left the ranch to Frenchie, and the $5 million he left to his daughter, uh, Robin. And uh, she looked a lot like him as well. He was instrumental in making wrestling popular again, and it became big business. And some actually uh, would actually say that Andre pretty much saved the WWF at that time because they were in financial uh, problems. And due to what he had done, um, he brought them out of that. So he lived every single day like it was his last. Andre was larger than life itself. Rest in peace, Andre Rusimov. Okay, so Jay, I want to hear about your dark side of Detroit. So well, go ahead and do that, and I'm going to go feed my boy bandit. Alrighty. Well, it was actually founded by French settlers in 1701. Now, lots of wars. You had the you had trap the trapper wars. You had the French the, the uh, French Indian wars. Um, all the way up until you had the War of 1812 after the American Revolution, and it is rife with ghosts and urban legends. Now, we all know that Detroit was, and still is, Motor City, Cadillac, Ford, General Motors, oh, DeSoto, uh, you name them, they were there. It, up until 1967, Detroit was not just an automotive hub, but it was uh, uh, pharmaceutical, uh, steel, uh, you name it. They were an industrial uh, powerhouse. They were the most uh, industrial city in North America. But getting back to this interesting little thing, there are two urban legends that just really kind of caught my attention. Um, there's an, an area... Uh, called Bell Lake, or Bell Isle, sorry. Now, as the legend goes, if you go to Bell Isle, which was established as a park in the 1800s, and you honk your horn three times, a lady in white will appear. Now, this story goes back to the, to the early 1700s. Now, as the story goes, Chief Sleeping Bear had a, had a daughter that was so beautiful, he did not allow her to see any of her suitors who were constantly, you know, basically they wanted her. <laughs> so anyway, um, he wrapped her in a blanket, put her in a canoe, and sent her down the Detroit River. 
However, the wind wanted to see the young girl and blew her blanket off, sending her down river where she was kidnapped. Feeling bad, the wind blew her back to the chief. Well, the chief, this time, sent her to, the, to Belle Isle, and he asked the Great Spirit to guard her for the rest of her life. Well, the Great Spirit surrounded the island with snakes, and that's how the story goes. Now, Belle Isle is... Um, the cool thing about this story is Belle Isle is uh, used to be called Rattlesnake Island. So this uh, young girl basically died there alone. And uh, legend has it that she either appears as a woman, a, a, a beautiful woman in white, or a or a white deer. Now the other one, the other, this one is really cool. I, and I never even knew about this. Um, the urban legend of and. Excuse me if I if I mispronounce this. Uh, Nain Roche. It's French for red dwarf. Now, accor- according to legend, before every war and every every battle, before the fall of uh, Fort Detroit to the British, before the fall of Detroit to the Canadians during the uh, War of 1812, Nain Roche or the red dwarf has always been spe- been seen. Now. He was spotted before the 1967 race race riots of Detroit. He was seen before the race riots in the 40s during World War II. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't stop the people of Detroit. Now they have a beer named after this little fella. Um, they have parades honoring this little fella. Um, he's a part of their culture. Um, the uh, when the one of the cool facts about this that is actually documented is when, when uh, the fort was surrendered to the British and the commander was hauled off in shackles, imprisoned, and he was going to be executed. Uh, he claimed that uh, Dane Rouge caused the downfall of the fort. So it's a, it's a well-documented, it's a well-documented uh, urban legend. And, one of the coolest stories is uh, Antoni, Antoine Cadillac. He was, he was one of the Detroit's founders. Um, claimed to have encountered the creature, smacked it, and told the little, the little, the little red imp to get away. Okay. Now, that was contributed to Cadillac's downfall. He was basically stripped of his power, Sent to Louisiana. From Louisiana, he was sent to France, put in prison, lost all his fortune, and basically died penniless. Um, just some cool shit about Detroit. Um, any questions? What did the little guy look like? As the description goes, he had an old man's face. An okay? old man's face. With, with an old man's face with sharp, pointy, rotten teeth, and his hair, his body was was covered with red fur. Just what you'd like to meet. Huh. Yeah, there's, pretty good. there's tons and tons of urban legends in Detroit. I just picked the two coolest. Um, apparently, now, according to legend, um, there's a matinee that is no longer there anymore. But on the site where the, where the matinee used to be, uh, people have seen Harry Houdini. I just, you know, it, well, yeah. Um, I mean, there's just so many, um, it's, it's, uh, third, it's, it's in third of hauntings to Chicago. I guess we will take a break. 
and we'll be back after this. And we're back. So, Brian, I just wanted to touch a little bit on Andre the Giant. Um, I had actually met him kind of briefly um, while going to one of my dad's friend's houses, and uh, I, I was pretty young, so I, I don't remember the, 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 the entire thing, like the entire meeting, but um, I, I do remember bits and pieces, and uh, he, he wasn't, like, he didn't stay at the location, so, like, I didn't actually uh, get a chance to get sat down, like, beside him or anything, but, um, yeah, he was pretty big. That's cool. I, I know that um, Stephanie McMahon, when, uh, when she first saw the giant, she called him Gulliver, Gulliver's Giant, and uh, they had a special uh, special uh, interaction with one another, and they stayed friends uh, until up until he died. So uh, that's pretty cool when a little little kid like yourself at the time gets to meet a giant, because a lot of kids never meet a real life giant, and this guy, I mean, he just towered over everybody. He was just a massive, massive man. Yeah, you can imagine how big he was, you know, when 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 I was young enough to meet him because he died in '93 and I was born in in '88, right? So it, it was uh, a huge there's difference. There's one more. Wanted, there's one more thing I want to talk to you about. There was one incident where these three guys they were taunting the giant in this uh, restaurant. They they were basically saying, "Oh yeah, sure, you can't take us on and stuff," and. Um, Anyway, they got in their car. It was a good-sized car, all three of them. He picked up the car. He flipped the car. The guys started calling the police, and the police actually charged the guys for, for harassing the giant. That's how uh, how popular he was in France. Pretty crazy, huh? Oh, wow. that's too cool. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a great story. So, Will, you got a topic you want to talk about? Yeah, um... It has to do with uh, Facebook hacking because there's, uh, there's been a lot of my family members that have been hacked through Facebook and, you know, I've, I've actually had to kind of, you know, inject myself into some groups to end a couple of things. But, you know, there's uh, a couple of things I want to touch on. And in fact, there, there's six things that the viewers need to make sure uh, they know how to do and that are done. Right. So number one is two-factor authentication. However, uh, you have your choice, and everyone knows this, uh, between text message, so SMS authentication, an authentication app, or a security key. Okay. And I'm going to tell you right now, um, through experience, I'm not going to go too much into details on the experience, but I can tell you that um, text messages uh, can uh, they're, they're not exactly the, the safest. So there's a method called a SIM swap, uh, which you can basically like spoof someone's SIM card and uh, you you know um, get the get the code uh, sent back to you or the authentication app. Now um, I I'm not sure if the authentication app has uh, upgraded itself from where it was at or the security key has uh, upgraded itself, but I can tell you this. Uh, for the uh, viewers that know anything about internet cookies, um, there's a thing called 2FA phishing. Phishing with a PH. Uh, PH comes from phone freaking back in the day. But 
uh, two-factor phishing is literally uh, the art of sending somebody a fake link that looks identical to whatever they're trying to, you know, get get into. There's a cookie that gets sent over through two-factor authentication, and that cookie, uh, hackers can actually take the cookie and inject it into what's called a cookie editor, and then refresh your browser. Uh, if you if you give a hacker a cookie, there's literally like changing your password. It it might work, uh, but I've seen instances where uh, hackers just use the cookies to get in, and they don't they don't need no password. So you you also should keep in mind that uh, uh, to make sure your email is current. And you you also need to turn on uh, in login and security, I believe it is, a notifications if someone logs in from a different device. Because uh, not many of these hackers are smart enough to you know copy your device information and whatever. They, they, that would probably like if if that's happening, you, you need some more help. But um, a lot of these scams that go around too um, never. Never, never, never share code with with uh, anybody that uh, you personally know. If someone messages you, because there's there's this way to log in through Facebook, saying uh, I select you know three friends, and those three friends get a code. If if you happen to you know get a uh, your friend happens to message you saying hey you know uh, will you accept a code from me, uh, just say no right away. That's automatically uh, like like uh, a hacker, and as soon as you enter the code, they're in your account. They're not trying to get into your friend's account. They're already in there. They're trying to get into your account. So what they'll do is they'll take your username, uh, they'll, they'll tell Facebook, hey, I forgot my, my password, and then they'll get the code sent to um, you, know, you or, or a bunch of your friends, and that's how they get into uh, uh, one of the ways to get into accounts. Now, if your friend, um, usually 98% of the time, if they're sending you a code, they're not going to message you first because they can't get into their Facebook, right? So um, usually when you get a code sent to you, you should be contacting your friend first and asking them, hey, you know, did, did you just send a code to me? Don't, don't just send it to them because their account could be hacked. You always need that, that open line of communication. And uh, these, these scammers right now are hacking a lot of people through uh, the codes and you know, hey, there's all this money to be made, and you know, you click on it and it looks like a normal Facebook link, which you can make what's called a shimmed link, which means that you know, say I have a malicious link, I can send it to myself, and then I can uh, right click and copy the address, which uh, comes up as l.facebook.com forward slash whatever, and it, it they'll make it look like a Facebook link. But you'll click on it, and all of a sudden, it's pop-ups galore. And those pop-ups are literally uh, attaching themselves into your device. And a lot of people are having a lot of issues with this. As like, if you've made any in-game purchases or you know uh, any like Facebook ads or whatever, if someone gets in your account, they will get a hold of your credit card. So just you know, be aware. Make sure you have 2FA on. Um, I suggest. You know, SMS, um, two-factor. I don't suggest email. Um, and the reason being is because normally when a hacker gets sent back a cookie, the email is the, is the one that sends it back. So the, the SMS, the text messaging, doesn't do that. 
but if if you have somebody that's smart enough to copy your your, your SIM card, then uh, they'd be you know getting that that pin. So it's just a, a matter of deciding you know how how bad the situation is, right? Here's a good question: Has Mark Zuckerberg ever got his Facebook account hacked that you know of? Well, um, I am not too sure actually. I, I I do know that they they like um there's hackers right now that have his password. They have done what is called a um well it's it, it, it's hacking Facebook to uh, JSON and getting it to dump out usernames and passwords, which has been done multiple times. But yeah, um Mark Zuckerberg has a uh, a team of special people that have special programs. In fact, if you want to view these programs. You can go into Google right now and type in uh, Facebook forensics. You don't even need anything special in there, just Facebook forensics. It'll come up with a document, and you'll see what they can see. They can, like, uh, I don't know, I, uh, to, to hack Mark Zuckerberg, I, I, I think you would need to have a little bit of knowledge behind the tools that they use because um, some of these tools are, are like Wireshark where, um, it'll be running on, like, like they'll have wire, this program called Wireshark running on a server and it, it literally, it'll grab your IP, like the attacker's IP address as, as soon as they send it in. It's, uh, but they have their own versions of this. It's almost like, it, it's insane when you look at the Facebook forensics documents because it, it, it proves in there that they can go into your messages at any time without your password, without your permission. And here, one more other question. Is he as computer savvy as, say, someone like yourself? Uh, no. So, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, if you know the history, he started um, with with a couple of guys, and those couple of guys actually had the source code. Uh, at the time, Facebook was the Facebook.com, um, and before that, it, it it was a different name. So, uh, before they switched to Facebook.com. Uh, there was multiple people who were involved, and uh, Zuckerberg basically stole the source code and everything else and said, hey, I'm going to make my own. He made his own, and then uh, they tried to sue him. Uh, I, I believe it went successfully. They got paid um, like low-key, which is why no one's ever heard of it. Well, a lot of people haven't heard of it, and um, it like I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I remember there was a controversy with uh, uh microsoft like bill gates didn't you, you know he he didn't he didn't create microsoft he stole uh all the stuff from his partners so it, 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 the facebook story is kind of like the microsoft story that was a great topic by the way will and some good insight into mark zuckerberg i, I know jay is just incensed about that guy, but we won't let him voice his opinions on here. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I post them on Facebook. Oh, okay. So, uh, Janet, well, hey, uh, if he's gonna put me in jail, I want him to see what he's putting me in jail for. <laughs> so, Janet, you got a attractive topic. Go ahead. So, Manitoba legislation is starting to target chameleon carriers. And those are those carriers that we hate, the ones that basically collect all the money, run the business into the ground, don't care about safety whatsoever, don't repair their vehicles, 
they shut down, then open up in you know with a new name and brandly spanking clean safety. By assigning conditional safety ratings, um, every company, at least I know in Alberta and I'm assuming across Canada, uh, basically opens up with a conditional safety rating. Now, with that, um, they, the problem with that is that they, um, they allow the companies so many days, or actually Manitoba is allowing up to 180 days for them to hire on a safety person, right, to oversee all the mechanical issues, driver issues, all legalities, all that stuff, right? And as long as, and I've worked for a company here in Alberta that did this, um, they managed to keep their conditional safety rating instead of getting audited and getting a, uh, either a good or bad rating. As long as they kept firing their safety people before that time, that six-month time, or in Alberta, it's three months. Um, if, they hire, if they fired somebody just prior to that three months, then they could say, oh, well, we have to hire somebody else because that person didn't work out. So they can continue running on a decent safety rating, except that that's not to say that their equipment is in good shape or they hired good drivers, you know, that kind of thing. So... What they're trying to do now is identify a certification compliance officer um, to submit a safety plan as well before this certificate is issued. So up until now, companies, they give get this conditional safety rating, and then, you know, they go through, try to jump through all the hoops, and there's too many ways they can go around it. Now, a company has to have all of that in place before they're issued anything. And if they're not following protocols, then they can actually lose their safety rating, which allows them to lose their running rate. Uh, they're also saying that the companies that are doing this, that are, you know, running shoddy equipment that's breaking down all the time, that are having drivers that are constantly having accidents, or you know, drinking on the job or whatever, um, anything to bring down the safety rating. They're they're looking at allowing the old safety ratings and the old issues to follow to the new company, which is what the you know what these people are trying to avoid, right? Up to now, um, the old safety ratings aren't able to go from one company to another. And this is what they're trying to fix now. Hopefully that fixes some of these issues because that'll change a lot of those fly-by-night companies. Um, they're trying to, let's see here, 2022 Manitoba updated motor carrier safety rating framework to align with the NSC standards. So uh, hopefully this will start eliminating some of these companies that, you know, have drivers that have had Accident after accident after accident, causing not only pro property damage, but, you know, injuring others in the process, right? So, yeah, any questions? Well, I'm glad to see that they finally started to do something about it after, what, 40 years? Oh, yeah, you and me both. You and me both. I've worked, I'm sure uh -huh. most of us have worked, have worked for at least one oh. company like that in our life. Oh, yeah. And I've had a few of them. <laughs> 
I, I knew of, of one family, and it was literally a family. They'd be running two companies at once. One company would be just starting. The other company would be probably sitting at about a six-month mark, where they had pulled in lots of money. Used They'd hire only owner-operators, right? And then, of course, with an owner-operator, sometimes it's two months before you see your first check. So you got this driver working for you for two months, and then suddenly no check. And then the company goes under. Yep. And then they open up a new one. So, and that's what this one family used to do. I also worked for another company. I think, ironically, they're still, they still exist. I won't name them. Um, but this is what they did. Uh, I was hired on at safety to also set up a maintenance schedule for the vehicles and doing all sorts of stuff, trying to get everything up to up to snuff so they could pass their, their audit. And uh, just prior to that three-month mark, they fired me, and it was because I was actually getting somewhere. They had one guy that actually drank on the job, um, I guess had a fight with his wife, went on a bender, and drove his truck all over the place. So, yeah, I mean, people not, not firing guys like that, you know, it's just so many shady companies. Well, it's a it's a good way to like trucking. I don't I don't care who you are. You can you can argue with me till you're blue in the face. Trucking and casinos are the best way to launder money. Yep. They are. You know, it's like it's like, it's the old adage. You know, you want to make a million in trucking, spend two. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's there's the outlay is is it's a lot of money. Yeah. So if you're involved in illegal activities. Buy a, tr- buy a small trucking company. Yep. You'll launder. You'll you'll come. You'll come out smelling like a rose every year. Yep. Exactly. You know that's that's why the um, in Richmond the triad from uh, Hong Kong yeah. is involved in all the casinos. Yeah. I wonder why. I mean, if you watch if you watch Lower Mainland, if you watch BC News, every six months or so they're they're nailing somebody at a casino in Richmond from China. Yeah involved in money laundering so you know don't put a stop to it or anything no we'll just we'll just kick them out of the country with the promise that they won't come back yeah well and i really yeah. hope that this comes you know, through right because it would be nice it, it, it would be a it would be a good step forward yeah for sure you know especially with the rate cutting yeah exactly you know and i mean i think the last three years have really even four last four years with all this stuff that we've gone through out there, there's just been so many that popped up suddenly oh, yeah. out of nowhere, right? And they're usually a smaller company, of course, because they don't want to outweigh a whole bunch of money. So you've got a you know a company that has anywhere from maybe only three trucks up to maybe 20, and suddenly, or they're using owner-operators, right? A lot of them do. Or they do what... You know that oh, yeah. what I what I spoke about before, where they try to make the driver an independent contractor, right? And then suddenly, you know, they're they're gone. The doors are closed. The building's been emptied out, and you're left there going, now what? Yeah, that went uh, a lot of that went on in the uh, in the nineties too. Yeah, a lot of it did. I don't know. I don't know about 
out here, but in uh, the lower mainland, companies were, <laughs> I mean, guys would grab a load, take off, come back, they're gone. Yeah. You know, um, yep. bailiffs got the, the bailiff, the sheriff has seized the property and everything yep. else. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, a lot of that, a lot of that went on. Yeah. And then as an owner-operator, I mean, yes, you own the truck, but it's technically leased to the company, which causes a problem there as well, right? So. Well, yeah. It, it just makes it makes it a big nightmare for everybody. You know, well, the, 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 the owner-operator has no protection. No. You know, um, I, I don't know if they ever will. I don't know if they ever will. I mean, you just got to be... I, I, when I was an owner-operator, I just looked at every company I would put my truck on to as a lion scumbag, and you had to basically sign your truck over to them yeah, so that they could put the insurance on it. And the first thing I said, you sign another transfer paper and give it to me. Yes, I, I, never, I never went through that. Mind you, I worked, I always worked for smaller companies when I was running my own trucks. And uh, most of the uh, companies I worked for were mom and pop operations. Um, they actually gave a crap about the drivers, you know. Um, some of them even had a couple of their own trucks. But, yeah, I mean, overall, I went with the smaller companies because... The larger ones can be just as sketchy, right? Oh yeah. Well, the ones that I always, I always got a chuckle out of was the companies that wanted you to paint their, paint your truck, their colors. Yeah, I remember that. And I, I would never fall for that because um, yeah. my feeling was fine. Then when I leave, you paint it back. Yeah, exactly. All right. So um, I've been on this top twenty-five kick. In case you haven't noticed, any of the freaks haven't noticed. And uh, just before we place this another new song, I wanted to quickly go through the top 26 Hollywood cartoon type dogs of all time. And who thinks number one they know number one? Anybody? Scooby Doo, man. You got her. Okay. Who's number two? Underdog. No, but he is on the list. No, I'll give you a hint. You blockhead. You blockhead. Charlie Brown. Oh, Snoopy. Right. Snoopy. Exactly. Who's the big red dog? I don't know. Come on. Clifford. Oh, my gosh, you guys. Hey, number four is a dog that I absolutely can't stand. So, um, Brian Griffin. Um. (laughs) (laughs) That's because they're in their purse. That's why. They're at home in their purse. That's why. See, if they were with you... You, you would you would get the joke. Yeah, got it. Number five, Ren from Ren and Stimpy. Remember Ren from Ren and Stimpy? Santa's little helper comes in at number six from The Simpsons. The greyhound that was abandoned at the track and Bart took him in. Right? Goofy, Mickey Mouse's best friend. And Mickey Mouse's pet comes in number eight at Pluto. Number nine is Astro, who was picked up astray from the Jetson. Um, number ten is an interesting one. This dog was a fictional dog in 1968, Jay, from Hanna-Barbera, and he was Dick Dastardly's sidekick. Who was that, Jay? I have no idea. Muttley. Muttley, right, from uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. That's the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. Number 11, Odie from Garfield. You could forget Odie. Number 12, Spike from the Rugrats. Number 13, Max 
from How the Grunch Stole Christmas. Number 14, Bolt, the German Shepherd from Bolt. Number 15, Cheat, the Irish Wolfhound from The Fox and the Hound. Number 16, Copper, the Bassett Hound from The Fox and the Hound. Number 17, the dog, the golden retriever from Up. His name's Doug, D-U-G, Doug. Okay. Lady and uh, Cocker Spaniel from Lady and the Tramp, and the Tramp, the stray dog from Lady and the Tramp. 19, Patch from 101 Dalmatian. Okay. Percy the Pug comes in from Disney's Pocahontas. Number 21 is Leo and, Lilo and Stitch from the movie Lilo and Stitch. Okay. Balto the Wolf from Balto. Scrappy-Doo, number 23. Scooby-Doo's, is that cousin, or is that brother? Or I think, I, I'm not sure. I think, I it, think was, it was his cousin. I think was it was his cousin, cousin or his nephew? Yeah. No, I think it is cousin. I can't remember. I can't remember. 24 is the underdog from the Hanna-Barbera cartoon the 1960s. And number 25 is Huckleberry Hound. Everybody knows who Huckleberry Hound is, Okay. And number 26 is Gromit from Wallace and Gromit. There are your 26 top dogs of Hollywood. Okay. So, we have another new song from Fist. And before we play it, I do want to tell the freaks out there how to get Fist music. You go to their website, and it's www.fistmusic.ca. Uh, the new CD, Fist Alive, you can get at www.rockpapermerch.com. And if you go to Fist Music on Facebook, you can follow Fist and the band and what they're doing and whatnot. And uh, Highway Freaks is proud to be affiliated with Fist, I might also. And now, have you ever heard of Joan Osbert's One of Us? Anybody? Anybody? I have, up? yes. Yep. What if God was one of us? Yep. Just a slob like J-Man. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You've been talking... Who have you been talking to? <laughs> so, um, here's one of us, and Ron Chenye does the vocals, and I'm telling you, he really puts a good spin on it. So, without further ado, one of us. We live in a sadly sick society. They They're going to go to hell not because they have they can find peace of mind in peace. They're going to go to hell because they are sinners. They try to eat their weight. Their they try to drink their weight of flesh. They're going to try to smoke their weight to
That was a really good song. Uh, I like their rendition better than the original, actually. Actually, uh, I was talking to Jeff Nystrom, and <laughs> I love the story. Uh, Jeff's sitting there in traffic, and he hears the original, and he phones up Ron, and he says, Yeah, I got it. I got it. He says, uh, One of us. And Ron goes, I ain't no religious man. He said, That's a religious song. And he goes, No, no, no. It's going to be good. He says, Make sure you do this. He said, 
goes, all right. So, uh, you know, basically, uh, Ron didn't want to do it, but, uh, you know, Jeff convinced him, and uh, it turned out really good, and they're both uh, quite happy with the outcome. So, uh, true story. True story. Okay. Cool. So, um, Janet, you've got one more topic to talk about, and I know we all want to talk about it. Truck parking, because I definitely want to throw in my little two cents about some crazy-ass shit <laughs> I've been seeing about parking lately in the United States. Yeah, I mean, parking for us in Canada has always been a lot worse, right? So Way worse. Um, so there is a company uh, called Cloud Trucks that did a survey of a 1,000 people. Now, of course, that's just a very minute amount of people. And this is just based on um, the truck parking, and let's see here. So the consensus was um, that, yes, we need more truck parking, obviously. And, that, of course, you know, a thousand people, there are very few truckers in that little, that little group, right? So the general population believes that uh, we do need more truck parking, but it's also got that just not in my backyard mentality. Unfortunately, um, the average American was not even aware of chronic parking issues. There was 50% in general thought that drivers were safer uh, than the general public. And there was 58% also felt that they were underpaid, that drivers are being underpaid, right? Um, 82% also felt that drivers are overworked. Um, I have to agree with that. Um, American, the Americans highly value truckers, according to this, uh, this survey. Now, truck parking has been a shortage and is not well known for the general public. 50% didn't even know there was an issue. 21% of those didn't even know that drivers sleep in their trucks. <laughs> yes. People just don't think about it. I know I've been asked numerous times about that. Do you, where do you sleep when you when you go away? Well, in my truck, obviously. Um, well, I have to say though, you know, most people have never actually even seen the inside of a truck for the most part. So I I, I can see where that comes from. So then. Most Americans are also in favor of more trucks. Hang on, I got one more question. Why do you think they call it a sleeper? Exactly. <laughs> they don't think about that though. They don't know all the terms, right? Well, even I, as a kid growing up, when someone said, "Yeah, you know, there's a sleeper on the truck," everybody knew that that's where the truck driver slept. So in all, it's lack in of all honesty. In all, yeah, it is. But in all honesty, I mean, I never saw the inside of a truck until I was 25. And that was when I went to get my license. At that point, I had never really driven anything much bigger than my, you know, 80 Chevy Caprice Classic, right? So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not unusual for people to not know that, I guess. Um, so most most Americans are in favor of more truck parking, just not in their neighborhood. They'd like to see it at least three miles away from residential areas. I don't know if that would be possible just for the simple fact. I mean, in a city, it'd be pretty hard to do, right? You'd be left with way out in the boonies, out in the outskirts, right? Well, so, speaking of parking, I'm, I'm yep. sitting here at a Walmart, and they have actually allotted 
parking spaces for truck drivers. You know, that's the way it should be at all Walmarts. It isn't, unfortunately, especially in California. You're not going to even try to park at a Walmart in California. But what I wanted to ask, and I know you've been off the road for some time, but did you ever notice how people are just going to park at these rest stops and they're parking behind all these trucks? And like in my wildest dreams, I would never park behind another truck. Did you notice that when you're on the road? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've seen that lot, you know, especially when, like, for example, Minnesota, when you get close to the Twin City, you know, and there's just nowhere else to park. Yeah, but you, you, you just I can't, mean, you can't park to something that blocks people. And uh, I'll tell you, you park, you park behind Bry Guy in the morning, I'm going to pull your ass out of bed and I'll yeah. tell you to move. I, yeah. I just, I won't do that. Uh, and I know oh, yeah. you, you don't do that either. Neither one of us do. We, we well, don't park illegal at truck stops. Yeah, but I have a, you know, I, I have a certain amount of courtesy. Yeah. You know, I also don't go on my 30-minute uh, break at the at the fuel pump. Yeah. Okay. You're I mean, I don't... around it, you know? You, you know, I don't park at, in the line. You know, I don't park at the pump and go for a shower. No. Today's truck driver, I don't know, I think they feel entitled that's the word? Yeah, you know. Oh, I think so. I think so. I think they're not as educated as they should be, right? Um, I mean, I just, I just think that they basically think they can do whatever they want. Nobody yeah. has to say shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, nobody, you got to realize does, too. Yeah. Got to realize too that these guys are not our generation. Most of them, right? Most of them yeah. are ones that, you know. <laughs> They just don't have the same respect for courtesy for others. Well, they're foreign, they're, a lot of them are foreign drivers. And we can include those that are Chinese, Japanese, Russian, East Indian. Uh, the, the, you know, uh, the list goes on and on and on. And a lot of them, they don't have that trucker mentality to begin with. They get forced into this position uh, through family and friends. And you know, they're immigration. a million dollars for immigration. Yeah, exactly. Right, and then they just do what they feel is naturally their right. And yeah. I'm telling you, the the lack of of uh, camaraderie is very apparent today. Oh yeah, oh. I mean that kind of went with the cell phone, right? It did. Well, I mean the old when, the old CB, right? Yeah, yeah. People stopped using the CB when cell phone came out. So. That's I stopped using I stopped using a CB before the cell phone came out. Yeah. I hated yeah. I hated the damn things. You get you, you, you no you'd just be talking trying to get you know you'd be get asked for local information or something. Yeah. You know you just you just start getting the the guy's information all of a sudden he'd be out of range. Yeah. You know I, or I, someone I would cut in. Yes. 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 Uh, and you'd, you'd get two guys trying to help you, and really what they're doing is completely screwing you up because they're over-talking. Yeah, I just got rid of mine. I, my, my, what had happened is mine just fried, and I just never bothered replacing it. And you think the prices would have dropped? They really, they, they're still no, gone up. up there. They're still up there, you know? No, I, I can honestly say I, I am one truck driver that does not have a CD in his truck right now. You'll, you'll never see one in a unit of mine. There you go. Says it all right there, doesn't it, Janet? 
you know, and all this, I mean, okay, granted, I mean, I, um, I, I hear a lot of guys with their arguments over these, uh, um, all these multi-vehicle pileups and shit like that, you know, the ones you see on the internet where everybody's doing a hundred miles an hour in a blinding snowstorm. I saw that today. Okay. I was on I-29 in North Dakota, and I was on US-2, and everybody were in the ditch, literally, yeah. from uh, that wonderful, wonderful ice that North Dakota is famous for at this time. Yep. Now, some guys argue, and it's a good argument, you know, a CB minus, minus, minus thing, a lot of those guys. Um, yeah, so would uh, not having a system on your truck that picks up something and locks you up. Yeah. So would I don't know anything about that. Oh, I do. It's a piece of shit that I have that did it to me yesterday. Fish tailing all over the goddamn place in this bucket of crap because the brake assist came on. I know. I hope they hear it. Scared the goddamn shit out of me. Yeah, I can only imagine. Oh, man, I almost ended up... I was on I-15. Nothing in front of me, nothing on the road. And next thing I know is the brake assist comes on and I'm going sideways. Oh, jeez. Scared the living shit out of me. Yeah, that would definitely do it. You know, how many how many accidents that they won't admit to has this wonderful Freightliner Volvo International um, driver assist thing? How many accidents and how many people have been killed because of it that they won't admit? Yeah. Well, it's all about insurance. That's what it's all about, right? Well, that's it. That's yeah. it. Well, I- have, you have... You have these features, you get a lower insurance deductible, yeah. you don't pay as much insurance. These multi-billion dollar companies are famous for that. And yep. I'm pretty sure that they've got, you know, engineers that were, you know, have never been in a truck, you know, facing all these quote-unquote safety features um, for oh, these fuck. trucks, but they're basing it on cars and pickups and, you know, it just it, a truck does not react the same way as a as a pickup's gonna or or a Honda Civic for that matter, right? So Well my ahead. feeling is my feeling is is you want better drivers. Instead of wasting everybody's time in classrooms yeah. and courses do, and courses and courses, get them out doing the job. It's a yeah. now I'm sorry. I'm not gonna pick on any of these guys from driving school, because a lot of guys out of driving school become damn good drivers. Yeah, like me. All I'm, <laughs> all I'm saying is trucking is a hands-on job. It is. It is. Why are they you can... wasting the... Why are you taking... So that these guys can get their license, why are you making them sit in a classroom for 80 hours? Your classroom should be the road. Well... All in the freight. I know the course that I took, mind you, we're talking early 90s here. Um, the course I took was a 40-hour course, and the 40 hours was just the driving portion of it. You know, then we had, of course, back then, we were allowed to touch our brakes and adjust them ourselves. Um, so, you know, you had your air brake course and your PDIC, you know, defensive driving course for commercial drivers. <laughs> I'm not going to... I'm not going to even tell you what mine was because you'll you'll cry. <laughs> but I mean, this was for somebody who had never been inside a truck ever, right? You know how I learned? Hmm. I would take my dad's truck on weekends, no license. I didn't even I didn't have a license. I didn't even have a, a, a learner's license. I would take it, go shopping, 
do whatever. I drive it all over f***ing town. Then I'd go down to the yard and I'd have the, the driver's book with me. <laughs> and I'd hook up to a trailer and sometimes it took me a month of Sundays to back thing it back into the hole so nobody knew I was using the trailer. But <laughs> then I would drive around, then I would drive around the industrial area and practice. Yeah, because nobody was around. It was the weekend. There was nothing there. No cars, yeah, no trucks, no. You had no you had exposure to this. I did I, have exposure. Yes, I, I did. did. That was that. an added bonus. That was an added bonus. My air brake kick, my air brake course. Um, I basically went in, and I never took a course. I went in, wrote the test. Yeah. Um, failed it once. Went back the next day, rewrote it, and I passed it. Yeah. Um, I just re I just read the book, but I'd already I'd been working on trucks and shit like that. Yeah. See, and there's the difference. Um, I had zero um, exposure to all this stuff. Um, the the majority of it was, but even but this is the funny part. This is the funny part. Um, even though I got my license, um, the company I was working for would not let me drive. Would not. I had to. I had to go with somebody. Yeah. I had to do. I had to do that for six months. Yeah. Which was good, which was excellent. Well, yeah, it's, it's because, like an, it, well, and and that's how it should be in all reality, because well, where I worked, where I worked, we worked for, I worked for what they what they called a tractor service. Right now, anybody that needed a truck, they would call us and we'd go out there do their job. I mean, I could be, I could be hauling tanker one day, you know, harsh chemicals yeah. the next day. Um, low bed, flat deck. I mean, I did everything. So I got the, all this experience just yeah. kind of lumped on me. No, Will's got another topic he wants to talk about. Go ahead, Mr. Will. Okay. So there are, there's a group right now, a couple of groups actually, that um, are of Russian. <laughs> I, I I hate to keep throwing Russia under the bus, but man, these, these, these groups are coming from Russia and a lot of the stuff that's made in Russia or, or you hear that that's in Russia is, is you know, uh, pretty serious stuff. And I mean, there's only a certain point in which you can get up to a hacking level. And then like, I, I, I guess there's learning at all times, but once you know how to hack, you're, 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 you're basically, you're basically there. There's, there's the, you know, so anyways, these, these hackers have, um, targeted uh, European military and transport organizations. And right now, uh, th uh, there's Russian hackers preparing new cy cyber assaults against Ukraine. And right now, it's, it's like, like I said on previous visits, that, um, you know, th this is, uh, there's a new type of war, right? And, and, and this is one of them, right? And I mean, they don't just like go in and steal data and stuff. They'll go in and, you know, shut down companies that are running down there that are connected to, you know, uh, supplies or demand so that, you know, they, they can't get their supplies or demand, right? And, uh, this is reported by, uh, Microsoft. And, um, it's, 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 it's pretty bad right now. Like, um, these guys are just all, all affecting, uh, I, I, I guess, multiple companies in the Ukraine. They, the, uh, the anything from like DDoS attacks to actually breaking into servers and sitting in there and preventing people from 
you know, sending messages or whatever. And, you know, like um, DDoS attack is a distributed denial of service. Right, and it, uh, I mean, there's uh, there's there's a single attack called a DOS, and 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 then a and then a multiple attack called a DDoS with multiple IPs or whatever. But right now, um, they're 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 targeting high-profile, uh, I guess, politicians down there, and uh, and and really high-profile companies. So we're about to uh, see a whole new side to Ukraine as well, right? Um, I, I, I don't agree with, with the war. I, I never will agree with, with a war because uh, it's all mo- monetary means. But um, Ukraine does not... I, I mean, they got some hackers down there, but they don't got enough to compete with Russia. So th- this is the issue, right? And Russia, I, I, like, it's looking like they want to... And not only... Well, they've invaded already... But they kind of want to like take the Ukraine over, and well, you know as well as I do, like the best offense is a defense, and um, Ukraine doesn't really have that that defensive uh, mechanism, right? So you know, like Russia, of course, has um, high high connections into you know places like. Um, U.S. and 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 just like all of the good hackers, and they don't care how much they have to pay. Like money is printed up every day. It's only legal if 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 us, uh, like your average citizen does it. But they will pay as much as they have to uh, to get these hackers on, on their site. Even uh, even Canada pre-COVID was uh, not only taking hackers in that had experience, but they were paying for the schooling, giving them everything they needed to do, to, to have, and then, you know, telling them, hey, look, you know, we need you to go do this. Now, I'm not going to speak too much on it because some of it is, is, is kind of uh, intense. But I can tell you this right now. Um, when, when you hear about, uh, you know, Russian hackers or Ukraine hackers or any, any of the sort, you can almost guarantee every single time that it is uh, part of a, a, a government conspiracy. Uh, it, it, it's just how it is. These governments will, um, like, there's many forms of invading, but uh, hacking is, is another one of those forms. And as long as they know what the next steps are, and this is what they're looking for, well, oftentimes what they're looking for is the next steps. What is what is, you know, the U- Ukraine's next steps? How are they going to, you know, defend against us next week? And so th- these guys are always like one step ahead, right? And there, there's a lot of them, right? Like uh, a lot of the hackers are, are now being caught uh, and sent to federal prison for hacking in and leaking documents. But, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because some of these people... Um, they were hired to do whatever they they had to do, and then they were ratted out by 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 the same people who sent them in because you know they they said a little bit too much stuff. You know, I mean, I'm not personally one of them. Okay, that that that's been uh, paid to go in anywhere, but I can tell you this much: I was trained, and uh, I found out a lot of stuff. Now I'm not under an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, so I can speak on this, right? But so what they'll do is they'll go on to sites like buyandsell.gov 
gc.ca which is canada's you know buy and sell site for uh contracts and there's literally uh companies that'll go in and say hey um federal government we we want money to pay for you know our artillery which which would be you know basically the hackers and they are hired by um states and countries so i mean it, it used to be conspiracy back in the day and 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 I tell you, man, I I didn't have a full grasp on what what was actually going on until I got a little bit of a taste of it. You know, any right. questions? I was thinking about Ukrainian hackers. That you said Russian and Ukrainian. Did you not? I'm almost positive that the Rus the Russians have a lot more knowledge than the Ukrainians. Right. Yeah. But in the end, it's always blame it on Russia. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm okay with. I can't stand Putin. He he is part of the uh, the problem in which society is facing today, with um, all these bankers and all this control and and all this other stuff. Like, imagine a, a world where you didn't have to worry about Putin. What would the next issue be, right? Well, <clears throat> they would move on to you you, you know uh, the other areas that they want to control. Very true. Very very true. So Jay, you have yes sir. You have a good death biography on someone that a lot of people might not know of. Who would that be? Well, they know about him now because Jimmy Kimmel was speaking off about him at... Uh, he was? Um, the Oscars were that, what, that. What, Yeah, that's that shit show that every... That, uh, yeah, the Oscars. Right. You know, I, I don't know. I've never watched the Oscars in my life, ever. Well, he, yeah, he definitely brought up Robert Blake. Um, yeah. Yeah, I did, I did catch that. Yeah, um... But then again, it's Jimmy Kimmel. Right. He has his moments. He's funny at times. Uh, I don't know. Hollywood. Okay, well, tell us about Robert Blake. But anyway, Robert Blake, you you remember him. He was uh, on Beretta. I do uh, remember Beretta. Yes. Great show back in the uh, back in the 70s. Um, he was in another show after that. Um, Helltown, I believe it was called. Played a priest. Oh, it was really that good. One. It was really good. You because know, it only lasted one season. It was really good. I don't know why they took it off the air. But anyway, he was kind of like uh, um, a priest, but a detective type thing. It was kind of like a really weird twist, man. But it was a good show. It, was, it wasn't it was bad. Um, anyway, he was uh, he, he died on uh, March 9th of this year. Yeah, he was born in 1933. Um, started acting. You're sure now. Sure, right? Yeah, I am sure now. He did. He was. He started acting in uh, 1939. Uh, he was. Uh, he played Mickey on The Little Rascals from 1939 okay. to 1944. Uh, he was a huge, huge child star back in the uh, 40s up until he was drafted into the war in the 50s. Um, he he acted with uh, Humphrey Bogart. Uh, in uh, High Sierra, he was uh, like he was a big name, and then he got drafted into the army and kind of got forgotten about. And he came out of the army. He actually went to act, went to acting school to hone his craft a little bit better, and uh, got back into acting. And by 1957, he was back doing movies. He was a bit of a character actor. Um, he never really he, he played many different different characters. He was on um he was on Gunsmoke. He was he was in um Rawhide. He he was in uh major uh 
like shows you wouldn't even remember, Red Rider, um, where the Red Rider BB gun comes from. Uh, shoot your eye out, kid, remember? Red Rider. Um, he acted up until 1997. Um, he did uh, a rendition of, uh, of Mice and Men. I don't know if you've ever seen it. He did a, it was really, really good. Um, and then in 2001, he was charged with the murder of his wife. Do you remember that? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Well, <laughs> his wife was a piece of work. Now, it took four years. Um, he was found not guilty. Um, did he do? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he did. I don't know. She was, she was married ten times. What she was doing, what she was doing is she was, she would fake pregnancy, uh, with different celebrities. With different celebrities. Why? To marry them. Oh, okay. Okay, well, what had happened was, um, she got pregnant while she was dating Marlon Brando's son, uh, Christian. Uh, right. Yes, well, he was, he would later be charged with another murder, um, which is actually a, a, a very good story in itself. Um, but anyway, um, it turned out it was Robert Blake's kid, so he took responsibility. But they didn't live together. They wouldn't, he wouldn't have anything to really do with her, but, you know, married her anyway. He took care of her, took care of the kid. And, uh, well, anyway, she was shot in his car, and he was had left. This was what he said. And this is where it gets kind of sketchy. Um, he had, he had told the police that he went back to the Italian restaurant to get his gun that he forgot. Now, there was no, um, there was zero um, residue from uh, firing a gun on him. So he definitely did not fire a gun. But there was two guys that claimed that he hired them, but their stories kind of got shot down in court as basically you're full of shit. Um so he was he was found not guilty, but that was basically the end of his career. That ended it, and uh, which is too bad because he was a good actor. Um, but you should. Uh, I didn't read a whole bunch about uh, about uh, his wife, Bonnie Lee Bakley. Uh, you got to read about this chick, man. You know, I mean, she was just out to lunch. Yeah, I know a um, few people like that. <laughs> you know, she was just out the out the lunch, and no, I mean, you know, she was playing with, you know, fire that one. So it was only a matter of time before, you know, you're going after people's money, and in Hollywood, money's a huge thing. Um, there's yeah, people out there that'll, 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 didn't that'll have much to, be, to speak of. He was, uh, he was, he had money. Uh, he wasn't filthy, stinking rich, but. He wasn't poor. Yeah, but when you're talking about a grave, uh, a, a grave digger, when you're talking about uh, someone that's going to go after someone in Hollywood for money, you're talking millions, right? Yeah, but I mean, um, Christian Brando didn't have any money. Oh, okay. All he had was Daddy's name, being Marlon Brando's son. Uh, right. He wasn't. He wasn't rich at all. So how did he? So how did he die? Uh, uh, he had heart disease. Um, he just passed away in his sleep. Um, and was Fred the cockatoo? You know the uh, the parent. Was that his real parent? I don't know. I didn't. I didn't ever find out about the cockatoo. I didn't I read up on that. I was more. I was more interested in. Uh, actually, I was reading more on his on his early days. Uh, most of his roles when he was younger, when he was a kid, uh, he usually ended up have to play uh, uh, native roles, either 
you know, a Mexican kid or a, an Indian kid. Really? Um, in, in Westerns, yeah. You know, and, uh, but he was famous. Like back in the, oh, between 1939 and 1950, he was, he was a household name. There you go. You know, I mean, so, yeah, it's, it's too bad, but, uh, I don't know. Maybe he did do it. I don't know. I wasn't there. So, as promised, that was, that was good. That was very good, by the way, Jake. Now, how was your week, Brian? I'm glad you asked, Janet. So, um, We'll start with when I left Montrose, Colorado last week, because I was more concerned about the Glen Canyon than I was actually going up the Eisenhower Mountain on I-70. Well, as it turned out, the Glen Canyon was actually for steam driving, but when I hit the Eisenhower Mountain, that was a different story altogether. Not only was I sitting on almost three-quarters of a tank of fuel, and I thought, hey, I I got lots of fuel. It's only an hour and a half past the mountain to go to the TA. No problem. <laughs> so why do I need to fuel up? <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> so I did not, and I admit I did not. So um, all of a sudden, we started to have uh, these traffic jams up the mountain. And I didn't think much of it. But after six hours... And then a wonderful blinding snowstorm that just suddenly decided to come in on the top of the mountain. I knew I was in trouble. And so, how many times have I told you not to do Eisenhower Junction in the winter? <laughs> <laughs> I think you mentioned it a few times, actually. Just a few, um, yeah. Just a few. So, well, I just thought I could sneak through this one time, but no, 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 no. Somebody had other plans to screw up my week. And uh, after chaining up and after calling the tow truck company and uh, speaking to Hollywood, well, I did talk to Hollywood, and he said, tell them Hollywood sent you. Just tell them that uh, can get some fuel. <laughs> Thanks, Hollywood. So, yeah, um, give them a shout for sure. And uh, they showed up with a tank truck. By that time... There was literally three feet of snow outside the truck. We were we were parked in a thing called the box, and it's a it's basically a stop where the plows can stay there parked because you know they wait for when the snow just goes crazy. But truck drivers aren't allowed to park in the box, and you will get a nine hundred dollar fine if you stay parked there overnight. And I just think of all the truck drivers that probably got the nine hundred dollar fine in the morning. However, I decided to venture on after I chained up. And I, you know, I haven't chained up for a few years, uh, more than a few, but I mean, I thought I did a pretty good job. It took me about an hour to chain four sets of drives. But other than that, I started going up the mountain, and my God, the terrain was god-awful. It was just ruts, and you know, you had piles of snow on one side, and you had to go to the other side, and you had to go around trucks. There was many vehicles that had run out of fuel, so, uh, and I had, I only got 50 gallons, but at least I got 50 gallons to get up and go to the TA. So, I get I'll past the tunnel, and then there's two tanker drivers behind me, and the one guy's just flashing his lights, flashing his lights, like, move, 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 and I'm doing like 21 miles an hour. And after hearing this, uh, basically, uh, lovely noise coming through the tunnel, like I was in a Swahili African uh, choir because it sounded like clunk, 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 clunk. 
um, I wanted to stop, but this tanker driver was right on my butt, so I couldn't stop. So as I'm coming down the mountain, the one guy passed me, and then he flashed his backup lights. But he wasn't flashing his backup lights at me. He was flashing them at the other guy. And then the other guy decided he'd try and run me off the mountain. So that was fun. And uh, after getting to the TA and discovering that I had one cracked fender and the other cracked fender, uh, that was my night. And I thought, okay, well, that's good. I'm, I'm not at least, you know, that uh, that bit of, uh, of chaos is over and I should be able to carry on with my week. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Not, 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 not for Bry Guy. No, the chaos continued in Carrington, North Dakota, when seven deer, when I was driving on pure ice, decided to go across the road when I was doing about 40 miles an hour. And I could not break. And lucky number seven was unlucky number seven. And the deer hit the side of my bumper, took out the fog light. So uh, there went the deer. So now I'm thinking, well, it can't get any worse. So I'm talking to my wife on the phone the next morning as I was crossing the border at Porto, North Dakota, and uh, or North Porto, Saskatchewan, I should say. And then a, an owl just decided to be suicidal that morning and just smash him the owl right into the side of Bright Guy's windshield. That was the craziest thing. I'm just talking to my wife and, you know, uh, wishing her a happy birthday and stuff. And I all of a sudden says, what the hell was that? Right? And I looked, and there's a dead owl on the side of my truck. And it's like, no broken windows, so that was good. So, it couldn't get any worse than that, right? Right, guys? How could it possibly get any worse? Well, <laughs> I get into Regina, and there's a secondary road behind uh, the yard, the company that I work for. And I've taken it before. I took it in the summer, but I never take it in the winter. And I thought, well, this should be okay. So, I started going down the road. And I saw this big, huge clump of snow right before the railroad tracks. I thought, oh, shit, I'm going to have to run through that. So I start, you know, because our trucks are so very well horsepowered. <laughs> anyway, I flew through that snowbank, went over the tracks, and there was the nastiest four feet, three to four feet of hard rock snow right across the, the road. Like, you couldn't make out the road. And now I'm stuck. Oh, and to make matters even more interesting, my trailer is now on the track. Well, I knew that, that we have a bit of a problem by now. So um, I didn't know what to do. And then these two guys show up. Um, and i got to give full props to Raymond and Thomas, um, the father and son. Uh, they own Schroeder Automotive in Regina. So if you uh, know these guys... Give them a, a pat on the back or sh a shake for me because, man, oh, man, what they did was nothing short of amazing. Like, I had my shovel, and I started shoveling, and um, I thought, well, I'm in trouble here, so I better do something. The first thing I thought was call 911 because I'm on the tracks. So I called 911, and they delayed the train for an hour and a half. So we had to, we had to shovel like madmen to try and get me off those tracks, and I just could not believe uh, Raymond, uh, the father, uh, he just picked up that shovel and just went to town. And, uh, I mean, that was a lot of hard snow. We're talking three to four feet of hard rock ice snow. So, and it was just surrounding my truck. So, to make a long story short, I started getting out the windshield washer fluid, threw it all over the tires, and all the oil field trick I did. 
Um, and usually it works pretty good. The tires get sticky, and you can get out of a really good situation that normally you couldn't. And sure enough, by the grace of God, I was able to back up over the track within an hour. But now I've got to end up into the snowbank that was on the road that I went through on the other side of the tracks, and guess what? I get stuck again. So the trailer is kind of sucked into the left side. The tractor's sucked into the left side. And then all of a sudden, uh, Raymond's son, Thomas, shows up with this big diesel Dodge Ram with a tow rope. Oh my gosh, I just can't believe this. I'm going to get out of this, you know. Uh, and then, of course, the police show up. And uh, prior to, to, to that, uh, I should mention that he was, they were more concerned of me getting off the tracks and me actually getting off the road. But he, he had left. So, anyway, um, so Thomas has got his Dodge Ram. They hook up the rope. I, we, I was in deep snow again, so the, the chains were pretty much useless at that point. So we put them underneath the Dodge Ram, underneath the tire of the Dodge Ram, uh, the tires, the back tires, and that would give them traction and damn if he wasn't pulling out the truck. Like, I could not believe it. And uh, so now I'm dead center in the road, but the trailer is getting sucked more and more to the left side of the ditch. So finally after, I don't know, I think it was like another hour and a half, I said, guys, we got to give this up. This is just futile, right? So... I decided to call a wrecker. Now, you would think that the wrecker would come from Regina. No, 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 no. The wrecker comes from Indian Head, Saskatchewan, which is about two hours away. And that's being politically correct, by the way. That is the name of the area. So the guy gets on the phone, and he phones me. He goes, this is Adam. I said, yeah. He said, uh, I'm with Camel. I said, I, I said, what? What? He said, I'm with Camel towing. <laughs> I said, that's what I thought you said. I wasn't really sure about that. He goes, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be there in about three hours. So I was like, all right, so a guy from Camel towing is going to be here in three hours. This I got to see. So sure enough, he shows up with this big, bright red wrecker, and he's got this sexy-looking gal on the side with a decal, and yet it says Camel towing. So, okay, all right. So he says, uh, I can't tell you from the front. Like, why not? He said, well, he said, uh, uh, he said, I, I'd be on the tracks. So I said, well, actually, not only would you be on the tracks, so I said, you won't be able to tow me after the tracks. And then he kind of looked at me. He got out and he said, holy crap. He said, no, I can't do that. So what he did is he pulled me from the back. He winched me from the back out. And then I had to follow his light seven miles down the road to the main intersection in blowing snow with backup lights that only go on for about five minutes and they turn off. And I was all over the road. I mean, I was I was grabbing onto the steering wheel. My, my hand was just literally tightly clenched onto the door handle so tight that I, I literally had to pry it off when I was done. And... Uh, Finally, uh, I'd given up after uh, the first five miles. I said, this, enough of this crap, because I was all over the road. I don't know how I managed to keep it on the road, because many times I was in the ditch, and I was pulling out of the ditch uh, with, the, with the truck. All of a sudden, it gained some horsepower. But I had had enough, so I just jackknifed the trailer, and the, tra the tractor just swung. I just whipped around. <laughs> the coach gets out, and he goes, as usually he says, I'm, I'm telling these the guys, after they, you know, they, they get out of a jam, I'm used to towing them a couple times. He said, but I never, 
never seen kind of stunt driving like that before. So he gave me full kudos. And, um, yeah, I got out of there, and that was my week. So uh, if anybody's had any kind of a week like that in truck driving, I want to hear it because I'll share the story on Highway Freaks because I don't think many people have that kind of a week. And they get towed by camel towing. So (laughs) that was my week. And like I said, I'd like to say a special thanks again to Raymond and Thomas uh, from Schroeder Automotive. Those guys were amazing. And um, I also like to thank Adam from Camel Towing as well because he did not have to stay there after that. He could have just took off, but I followed his lights. And you try following lights, tow lights, in a blinding storm, snowstorm. I, I like to challenge anybody to do that. And not alone one mile, we're talking another six on top of that. So that was my week. And I hope never to have a week like that ever, ever again. And yes, Janet, I will never go to Montrose, Colorado, ever again. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, probably a good thing. <laughs> I mean, Eisenhower Junction is not bad in the summer, but I just find that it's, it doesn't really save any time. Better in the winter, it's got its own weather. It's got it its does. own weather. And it takes, it takes prisoners of semi-trailers by the dozens every week up there. And uh, there's not a there's not a week that goes by in the winter that semi trailers are in the ditch or they're in a much more uh, serious situation. Yeah. So great guys, um, that was a great fist song tonight, and uh, if you enjoyed that, we are going to have more fist on podcast visit number twenty seven. Okay, so we're going back to uh, a book that I wrote uh, on a, a guy named Jasper Stevenson. I met a long, long time ago. And if you haven't been following the chapters, we're, we're up to chapter 10 now. And just uh, go back to the archives and start with number one, and you'll get the whole gist of the book by listening to the end of the podcast. It's usually when I do the uh, the chapters for the book. Um, it's taken from the book Temporary Satisfaction. This is chapter 10. And it's called Possessed Love. Noreen Free was this wild little short brunette with a lean, lanky body that stood five foot four inches and maybe a hundred pounds soaking wet. This fireball chick had a real zest for life, a terrific sense of humor, and only had eyes for me. She was smart, but not brainy, and had definitely come from the other side of the tracks. My new girlfriend was also a farm girl and lived quite a wise a ways past the local dam in my in my neighborhood, so I needed some wheels fast. Also, because I was dating Noreen, I needed to get a job as I couldn't very well wine and diner at McDonald's, now could I? <laughs> Consequently, I landed a job as a roller DJ at an old arena situated on the fairgrounds. Every stretch, I would spin the 45 discs in the other half the time. I roller skated around prancing and dancing with the gals there. I must say, I was pretty well versed on those old four-wheel skates back then. In fact, I went backwards, side to side, and even did the jumps. The following month, I had finally made enough money to buy my first car, and after my dad had got over his anger about my speeding in his truck, he eventually helped me with the purchase. We decided on a 1968 cream-yellow Javelin when he just drove home, and there it was, one day just for me. 
My first car was not really anything special either. No mag wheels, no fat tires, no paint job, heck, not even a cassette deck. It was your basic original car that had enormous potential to fix up later on, but I had more cash to spend on it. Furthermore, I'd spent a great deal of time in the Reed's farm too. Just the two of us rode dirt bikes out to the gravel pits behind our parents' homestead. That was also my first time on two wheels as I tried to climb those large dirt hills biking up to the pits, but damned if I didn't fall off that dirt bike after a number of tries. Later on, when the sun went down, we sat in her brother's derelict Ford van parked back in the woods. Noreen had to come across an old mattress, some blankets, a pair of pillows, and hauled them in there herself. Then we opened up the old van's back doors wide open for every animal and critter to see us spending intimate moments with one another. That's where I first lost my innocence at age 16, along with Noreen, who was maybe a year younger at the time. Little was I even aware of her dark side. Further to that, she was intrigued enough to experiment with the occult. I guess she liked playing with the Ouija boards and was quite fascinated with Satanism. As a matter of fact, I've done a quite a bit of research on possessions of people who are haunted by wickedness. Actually, to tell you the truth, a good percentage of people who become possessed don't actually remember what happened to them by these dark forces of evil and inevitably have absolutely no memory of it. Unbeknownst to me, Marine also developed a split personality from something that had come through that blackboard when a friend and hers had played with it one evening. There was Marine, my lovable, shy, playful, sensuous brunette who I loved to be around with. However, also popped out Jane, a dark, foreboding, horrible spirit who tried to possess my girlfriend and inevitably wanted my very own soul. During our relationship, I cannot tell you how many times she informed me of how very dangerous and life-threatening this thing inside her could be towards me. I was 16 years old, man. Just had my cherry pop by this young gal and not quite well educated on what really evil was at that point in my life. In the beginning, I thought it was all a joke, and Noreen was just some crazy chick I lost my virginity to. I'll tell you one thing, that's definitely undeniable to me to this day, that I experienced complete fear and situation I found myself in. Still a chill in my spine to this very day when I think of the weird goings on us in late October of that year. I still remember every detail of the event that occurred in my bedroom during one fateful evening. There me an assortment of silver crosses and had strongly advised me to place around my bed that Halloween evening when I got home from our date. I'd already experienced enough of Noreen's violent outbursts from Jane when we were engaged in sexual intercourse that I was starting to believe her. For once, I took her advice and I did as she asked of me that evening. It was after nightfall that I laid in my bed with my eyes wide open. I was determined to stay awake till sunrise if I had to. I had turned on the ceiling light, a lamp on my dresser, a nightlight by my bed, so the room was completely lit up by a bright white glow. Then I didn't smoke, didn't get drugs of any kind, barely drank alcohol, was wide awake drinking cup after cup of black coffee this particular evening. My mom and dad were working and Chuck was out with his buddy Len at another house. Unfortunately, nobody witnessed what I'm about to share with you, so there is no concrete evidence this evening even took place, but you'll just have to take my word for it as the gospel because I know it happened. Instantly, my whole bedroom started shaking and violently and almost out of control, including the nearest window, which I thought was going to break. As for my well-lit room, well, all my lighting turned to dark, and the walls turned from the creamy yellow to blood crimson red. If that wasn't enough, 
and you'd be instant heart failure, a very large white bony hand came through that window and hovered over my head. I was completely petrified, lying on the bed with my covers bust up from my neck. The hell I found myself in continued as I saw flaming skull-like red eyes surrounded by an enormous horrid face with razor-sharp bone teeth. I swear they were so large it could swallow me whole in a split second. The cavernous mouth opened and there was a loud rattlesnake hissing sound just as it was about to strike. Little did I realize this was the final showdown between me and that evil bitch, Jane. Like I said before, I'm not a religious man, but that night I prayed to God to let me live through this. Over and over again I chanted in the name of our Lord God Jesus Christ, please go away. Go back to the hellish depths of where you came from, you nightmarish demon. I yelled at the horrible monstrosity. For some unexplained reason I can't explain, those large bony claws hovering over my bed couldn't grab me. And believe me, it tried, swooping down over me many times. The large skull got smaller, shrinking back into the window and outside into the night. As if on cue, all the lights came back on the walls were back to a creamy yellow. I was so exhausted by what just happened that I simply just passed out. The next day when I went to school, my girlfriend Noreen walked up to me and asked if Jane had visited me the previous evening. What was really weird and definitely creepy was how she sounded quite normal in her demeanor and questioned me regarding this. Yeah, Noreen, she did. And we had an awesome time too, honey, sarcastically replying with rage. We ate devil's eggs sandwiches, drank red roast tea, and had blueberry cookies. I mean, seriously, what the f*** did she want me to say to that, right? She was completely oblivious to my sarcastic comments, but at that moment, she presented me with a gold cross necklace. Furthermore, Noreen went on to tell me that she had gifted in holy water later that evening at their family church. She asked me to always wear this cross around my neck for my safety, especially when I was around her. I was completely aghast by this, but I agreed to wear it with no questions asked. The next Saturday weekend was a Saturday. I was bringing her over to have supper with my family when something bizarre happened that is just in the twilight zone. I stopped at the red light on Devonshire Avenue, which was just a block up from the hill from my house, and the unexplained thing happened. On Huron Street, which was directly across from me on my right-hand side, there was an old rickety-looking tractor towing a large and long cultivator plow with long silver blades draped alongside it. It was extremely odd that you would either see a farm tractor in town, let alone one that was towing equipment with blades raised up to the sky as opposed to being down, which was usually the case. As I was waiting for the steel light to change, I watched the tractor execute a left turn into my far left lane. I started to have a conversation about this with Noreen when she turned and looked at me suddenly. Her green grassy eyes had become crimson red. She hissed at me like a snake. Instantaneously, I recalled that sound from the other night. me. Jane is back. And this time in my car. But she doesn't sound very happy either. I quickly thought about this. At that very moment, she gave me a rather evil smirk and turned her head back to facing the front window, completely ignoring me. The tractor made the turn and passed by my driver's window, and now I saw the plow coming directly into the left side of my front fender. It hit with such impact that the blades were put to work, tearing the side of my car apart, coming extremely close to my left side brake pedal. I just closed my eyes, grabbed the gold cross around my neck, and started praying silently again. The God. The tractor brakes as well as the blades stopped, and Noreen's eyes turned black, back to her back to their normal color. What the hell just happened, Noreen? I yelled at her. I don't know, Luke. I, I don't know, Jasper. I don't know. 
She sobbed incessantly with tears streaming down her face. My adrenaline was an overload, so I got out of my badly damaged car and started swearing and cursing at the old farmer. It quickly dawned on me that he didn't speak a single word of English, but was in fact French. Imagine that. In the end, my car ended up being a write-off, and I also wrote off Marina as my girlfriend as well. I'd had enough of that Linda Blair excellent exorcist shit. That was my first experience with the cult, but believe it or not, it wouldn't be my last. Subsequently, until the insurance company figured my claim out, I was once again carless. I might need another job now to get another set of wheels, because riding a 10-speed bike to high school just wasn't cool. I was kind of depressed, so I turned on the TV downstairs in the basement and flopped on the couch. There on the screen was that former actor Ronald Reagan being inaugurated the newest president of the United States. So at that precise moment, the phone rang, and as it turned out, it was my insurance company. Apparently, they had settled the claim a lot faster than I thought. My next car that I purchased was a dark green 1973 two-door Vega hatchback. We'll have some more uh, fun and frivolity and blogging topics. It's always good to have uh, comments of any kind. We value every one of them, and we welcome them. So uh, thank you, Janet. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Jay, as usual. And Highway Freaks will continue to have fun and entertain you till uh, we stop, which probably will never happen at this rate. So... Unless we get retired and, you know, then we win the million dollars in the lottery. There you go. So have yourself a great week. We're out.